0: The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after many sufferings. And by offering many convincing proofs, he appeared to them for a period of over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God, and he gathered them together and commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said you heard from me for John the Baptist John the Baptist baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now and So when they had come together they were asking him saying Lord is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel But he said to them it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven?' This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Would you bow your head with me and we'll just get this started right with a quick word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the explosion of your church here on earth. Thank you that you have given us the responsibility to be the witnesses, to be agents, to be people of the kingdom of God here on earth as we look forward to the kingdom consummated in heaven. I pray tonight, Lord, that I, you know, I'm, I'm suffering from what I've heard is called dad brain. It's a real thing, and I don't even, don't even know what to say or what's coming out of my mouth at this very moment. Maybe that's good, Lord. I, I pray that nothing comes out of my mouth tonight that is not worshipful and that is not directly found in Scripture, that I set aside my own opinions and my own preferences, and that the people here tonight would hear the word of God because there's nothing else that I'm saying. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you you accomplished and that you made possible, and thank you for the perfect righteousness that you offer us. Thank you for the hope for all of eternity that we have because of what you have done. Help us to be your faithful servants in the meantime. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. So that's what I was going to say. I was going to say that five minutes before I got up here, I, I realized that I had lost my Bible and my notes. And I was running around looking for them. And I found a new Bible and I printed new notes. And then I found my Bible and my notes. And then I, I forgot my phone, which is usually my timer. So I don't. I don't know what we're going to get tonight. We're just going to wing it. But with our books open to the book of Acts, let's begin. I want to just by, just by introduction into the book of Acts, I want to begin by, uh, by stating once more why I decided to, to preach out of the book of Acts for this next year, year and a half. We'll, we'll see how it goes. And the reason is because the book of Acts uh, is a direct follow-up from the Gospels. And what we looked at, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we just spent the last 22 months going through the Gospel of John. And what we saw at the end of John was almost a story concluding with Jesus and seven of his disciples sitting by the Sea of Galilee having breakfast. The Gospel of John almost ended that way. And it was, it was such a sweet ending, and I made, I made note of it whenever we preached through it, that I kind of wish that that's where the story had ended. You'll remember, just to, just to remind that Jesus goes to the cross, he's mutilated, he's crucified, he's, he's, he suffers a real physical human death, he's buried in a real tomb as God and as human at the same time, he's resurrected from the dead three days later, he spends time amongst his disciples as he is, after he's raised from the dead, and at the end of the Gospel of John, seven of his boys are in the Sea of Galilee fishing, and they've caught nothing all night, and Jesus shows up on the shore, they don't recognize him as Jesus at first, and he shouts out to them and says, have you caught anything? And they say, no. Jesus says, throw your nets over to the other side, which should have alarmed them that, you know, this is a repeat story. This has happened to them once before. And John is the one guy that's like, I think, this, I think that's Jesus over there. And Peter hops into the water and there's a, coal, there's a charcoal fire and fish already there And they sit at the sea, they sit at the shore on the Sea of Galilee, and it's this beautiful picture of what I really think is a a shadow, or it's a type, it's a form, it's it's an image of what heaven will be like. Us, with our friends and family, with the resurrected Christ, in a meal, maybe sitting by the shore somewhere for all of eternity. In communion, and in relationship with God our Maker, with God our King, forever. But that's not where the story ends. It's a very sweet moment, but... In verse 15 of chapter 21, it says, So when they had finished breakfast, and then the story goes on, Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's reinstating Peter after his great fall, after his great denial of Jesus. And then he goes on to tell him, You're going to have to get busy. There's a lot of work to do. Just because the resurrection has taken place doesn't mean that rest and relaxation is available for you right now. You have all the hope of eternity. You have all the hope of the future. I can guarantee you that. But here in the meantime, on this earth, you've got to get to work. And by the way, Peter, you're going to die a horrifically painful death by serving me. But come follow me. And he does. And that story of following, that story of work, the 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 taking the gospel into gentile lands and into all the world is what the book of acts is all about and so i wanted to just continue with the story this is the story of the early church this is the story of how god exploded his church in a small place in, in the world and against all the odds against all the statistics christianity erupted because it's true and that's what we're going to look at tonight it's what we're going to look at for this book is 28 chapters, and I have no idea how long it's going to take to get through it. I don't care. I'm going to preach every verse. I'm going to preach every chapter, and we're going to see how long it takes, and I hope that you're going to show up uh, and be a part of that. So this is the book of Acts. So who wrote the book of Acts? Well, somebody, somebody wrote the book of Acts, and we're given a hint right in the very first few words of, of the book. It says, the first account, O Theophilus, that I composed. So if this is if there is a first account, and this is the second account, what's the first account? Well, you probably already know this, but the first account is the gospel of Luke itself. This is how we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. Because if you read in the, in the book of Luke the first few verses, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this to you. Luke starts his gospel off like this. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word and handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well having invested everything carefully from the beginning to write, out it, to write it out for you in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certain the things that you have been taught. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and it was the first account of Jesus' life that he wrote to this guy, Theophilus, and Acts is a continuation of that story. It's a continuation of the Gospel story, and, and really the book of of Acts and the Gospel of Luke are supposed to be together. It's supposed to be one full work called Luke-Acts. It's the continuation of one full train of thought. Luke wrote this to this individual who he, who he names in Luke 1 as most excellent Theophilus, and Luke is a very interesting character. I kind of think, as I was studying about Luke, I kind of think that Luke is the unsung hero of the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament scriptures, you hear a lot about Peter. You hear a lot about Paul. Everything is about Jesus. But Luke is someone who doesn't get a whole lot of spotlight. And it's kind of too bad because he was a stud. We know, through, we know that from the book of Acts and through the writings of the apostles that Luke was, was a hardcore, committed missionary all the way the end. He was a personal friend of Paul the Apostle. He even traveled with Paul the Apostle. We're introduced to Luke for the first time in, in Acts chapter 16. If you sat down and you just read all of Acts from, from, from one end to the next, from beginning to end, you'll, you'll see that the first half of the book has a lot of, they went to this place and they went to that place and this happened to them and those people did this to these men. And then when you get to chapter 16, everything becomes Everything becomes first-person plural. We went to this place. This happened to us. Luke, in chapter 16, joins forces with Paul and and continues with him in his missionary work and continues with him all the way to the end. Luke was one of Paul's besties, and it was with him all the way through. Paul comments on Luke in Colossians chapter 4 and says refers to him as Luke, the beloved physician. Luke was the beloved physician. Him and Paul were friends. They were, they were intimate. They were close. They worked together. They traveled together. And Luke was probably very, very well introduced with Paul because he was, he was a physician. He was a doctor. He was a historian. He was a missionary. He was... Uh, he was a hard worker in the gospel, and he was a doctor. And all the way to the very end of his life, Paul writes this. In the last, in the last letter that he wrote to his apprentice, Timothy, Paul says this in 2 Timothy verse 4, chapter 4 verse 11, he says, Demas has left me, Crescens has left me, Titus has left me, but Luke alone is with me. All the way to the very end, Luke was faithful, at, at the risk of his own peril, at the risk of his own life, certainly at the risk of his livelihood, at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes out the list of all the things that have happened to him. And he says in verse 24 that I have five times received the 39 lashings, which every time you got whipped 39 times, it would tear your body to hamburger meat. And it's most likely Luke that was there as a doctor who helped mend Paul back to health. Luke is the unsung hero of the New Testament. He gets very little attention, but he is a big part of what we have here. In fact, and I actually did this a couple times this week, I asked people, and I, I thought this too, I asked people who wrote the bulk of the New Testament. Of the 27 books we have in the New Testament, who wrote most of it? And without fail, everyone says, Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote 13 letters, he wrote 13 of the books that we have in our New Testament canon. And that's a lot, but if you actually, if you take Luke's writings, if you take the book of Acts and the book of Luke and put them together, it's more than all that Paul wrote. Because Paul wrote a lot of books, but a lot of them are, are pretty small, right? So Luke and Acts actually compiles more of the New Testament together. Luke wrote the most of the New Testament. He was a physician who traveled with Paul all the way to the bitter end, even when everybody else had left him behind. This is the guy who wrote, who put together this book that we have here in front of us. And he writes it to Theophilus, The first account, O oh, Theophilus, that I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach. We don't know much about Theophilus, but it, it, just for the sake of, of, of study and, and because we're here, he most likely was some sort of Gentile, but probably maybe even a Roman official. Because in Luke 1, he's referred to as most excellent Theophilus. And that title, most excellent, is, is only attributed to people who have some sort of high standing. We see that same that same title used in Luke 24 and Luke 26, oh, oh most excellent Festus, most excellent uh, Felix. These are, these are rulers, these are governors of Rome. So Theophilus is probably someone of high standing. And this, this isn't any, any battleground that I would ever die on, but some people ask, why is the most excellent in Luke, most excellent Theophilus, but in Acts, it's not? And some people say, well, it's probably because Theophilus actually became a believer in Jesus when he received the gospel, and he's no longer this highfalutin, regal type, but he's just a bro. And so he's no longer a most excellent. He's just, oh, Theophilus, our homie. But that's, for, that's, just, that's just there. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but Theophilus was receiving these letters whoever he is. I composed all about Jesus began to do and teach. What could possibly not be done? If the gospel is about what Jesus began to do and teach, what is he still doing and teaching? And in one sense, just like the kingdom of God, the kingdom is of God is what we call now and not yet. It's here in part, but it has yet to be fully consummated. And the work of Jesus, in one sense, is absolutely done, absolutely final. Nothing can be added to it at all. His work of redemption is finished. On the cross, Jesus cried out in John 19:30, it is finished. The price for sin has been paid. The sacrifice has been made. It is done. The law has been satisfied. It has been lived. It has been upheld. It has been satisfied. It is done. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the entire world for all time. That work is finished. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 verse 12 that Christ offered for all time a sacrifice for sins and then sat down at the right hand of God. Guilt is lifted. Sin is paid for. The work is done. And now salvation being saved, being born again of the Holy Spirit, entering God's family for eternity is a matter of faith that is a gift of grace. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and following. It's not by your own works that you're saved. It is a gift of grace that it's given to you by faith, believing in Jesus Christ, believing in Him as Lord, believing in Him as God who died for your sins, paid the price, and gives you His perfect record in its place. He who knew no sin became sin. It's done. The continuing of the work is what Acts is all about. It's taking the gospel truth. It's taking everything that Luke compiled in the gospel of Luke and now proclaiming it to the world. It's a work that is, that, is a, that is inaugurated here in the book of Acts and it's continued all the way through church history to this very moment that we're living in right now. It is what we do as Christians. We tell people about the hope and about the life and about the love of Jesus Christ, about the dangers of sin and death and hell and the fact that we are fallen creatures that need a Savior despite what our autonomous, hedonistic selves would like to believe. We need Jesus. We need a Savior. Romans fifteen eighteen Paul says, I will not speak of anything but what Christ has worked through me. Paul was on the other side, on the, 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 the post-resurrection cross. He he lived after Jesus. He went into ministry after Jesus was ascended into heaven. But Jesus was still working through him. And Paul says, I won't talk about anything except what Jesus is doing through me. Jesus is working through his people by the power and by the presence of God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It was true then, it's true now, it's what we're still doing here. So what Jesus began to do and teach in the gospel, what he's continuing to do and teach is what has already happened. We don't teach new doctrine. We don't teach new truths. We go back to the Old Testament. We go back to the New Testament. We go back to scripture and tell the world, here is what is true about the entire cosmos. Here is what is true about you. Here is what is true about life. His name is Jesus. We proclaim and we evangelize and we preach and we spread the word because that's what Jesus wants to do through us. He, we are his agents, and he gave us orders to do so, which is verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. He gave orders to them. He gave orders to them in many places, but the one, the one spot that I'll pick out is in John chapter 20. After he's risen from the dead, he takes the disciples, and it's this mysterious moment. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And as, as I was sent into the world, now I send you. He says the same thing in John 17 when he's praying to God the Father. He says, just as you have sent me into the world, Father, I send them into the world. We're saved, we're re-energized, we're given a new heart, we're given a new affection, we're, we're made by the Holy Spirit to love God and to deny self and to pick up our cross, and we go into all the world out of gratitude and affection, not merit, not out of duty, not out of this this travail of I've got to beat my back and I've got to do this thing because my boss told me so, but out of the fact that you have been saved by grace and you want to tell everybody about it, Jesus is worth loving. And so he doesn't give us everything that we want all the time, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but he's given us every reason to trust him in the meantime. He's given us orders, receive the Holy Spirit and go. I send you. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus rose from the dead and he said, now I send you the book of Acts. Go and plant the church. Spread the gospel. Tell everybody about me. verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his resurrection by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. He rose from the dead and then he continued to hang out with them for 40 days. And some of what he did during those 40 days we have in the gospels. We don't have all of it, In fact, that's how John's gospel ends. John ends by saying, if everything that Jesus did and said was recorded, then the world itself would not contain the books that could be written. But Jesus stuck around for 40 days (laughs) because remember, I mean, Jesus was brutalized on the cross. These guys had an idea about who Jesus was. And when Jesus died on the cross, it completely eviscerated everything that they thought. They expected a kingdom. They expected a throne. They expected a crown here and now on planet Earth. And then for Jesus to be lying on the cross Mutilated beyond human recognition, bloodied, torn apart, crucified, dead. There's really no hope there. But everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus promised, everything that He prophesied, came true. He rose from the dead three days later, and still His boys were like, "There's no way." In fact, the 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 first person to get it was was Mary. Jesus rose, and Mary was the first person that saw him, and he said, go and tell my brothers that I'm here. I'm ascended. She ran, and she told them, and they didn't believe him. They failed. They fumbled. They doubted. They even, they even mocked Thomas famously. He's known as Doubting Thomas because he was the one who was like, I, I don't care what you say. I don't care. He, everybody saw him. Everybody was saying, Jesus is alive. Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas was like, nope, I will not believe it until I see him, and I can touch the wounds that are left. The scars that are there, I will not believe. And he was granted that. He was given that. So these guys needed some reassuring. Their faith had been jostled, to say the least. They were uncertain. They were confused. They were lost. They were full of doubts. They were full of skepticism. And so he stuck around for 40 days, giving them many convincing proofs and teaching them of the things of the kingdom of God. If you take all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, You take the accounts in the book of Acts, and you take the account in 1 Corinthians 15, there's 10 recorded appearances of Jesus post-cross. There's 10 times we have in Scripture that Jesus showed up to his his people and taught them, ate with them, communed with them, walked with them, reminded them, pointed them again, the the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. If there is a Bible study in all of history that I would have loved to have been a part of, It was the road to Emmaus, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, walking with two of his disciples, explaining to them all of the Old Testament and how it points to him specifically. He did this for 40 days because these guys needed some buttressing. They needed some reassuring. And I love this because this also speaks to the fact that... Why is the Bible still here? Well, I mean, my my answer is because it's the infallible word of God. It's not going anywhere. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away before my words pass away. And I believe that. But getting down to just like the logic of it, like going back 2,000 years ago, what happened? How did this work out? Why did this, you know, these were, this was 11 dudes. Judas didn't make it out of this alive. There was 11 guys left that Jesus left the gospels with. And yet 2,000 years later, Christianity is all across the world. How did this happen? Because it actually happened. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared before 500 people, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And what that means is that this message, this investigation that Luke did, this, this interviewing, the research, it was falsifiable. This entire story could be, could be called out and said, that I was there then and that didn't happen. If you drive up Gleason Street... When you get to 90th or 91st, there's this little Church of Christ building. It's this little brick building on on the south side of the street. And behind that building, if you blink, you'd you'd miss it. Behind that church is a a one-story, long, skinny building called Columbia Christian High School. It's where I went to high school. It's a tiny little place. And if you, I graduated from high school, I thought about this today. I graduated from high school 17 years ago. Good grief. If you go back, but there are people at Columbia Christian High School that, are, that were there in 2005 when I graduated, that were there in 2001 when I started high school, and if you went to Columbia Christian School today and you, said to the, and you asked them, was there a student in 2004 who was here named Ian Cornell and he lit the girls' bathroom on fire and burned it down and they had to call the fire department and spray it down and rebuild that whole wing because it was destroyed, the people at Columbia Christian School would say, no. I was here then. I worked here in 2004. And they've got no reason to lie. There's no reason to lie and say, yeah, Ian did set the girls' bathroom on fire. That was the first thing that came to my head. There's no reason to corroborate that. Why would anybody corroborate this story when their life is on the line? You know, we're going to get to this. Whenever we get to Acts 9 and, we, and we're introduced to the man, Saul, who becomes the great apostle Paul, he gets saved in Acts chapter 9, and within a few paragraphs, within maybe, maybe a page, People are already trying to cut his head off. He's being chased out of town. People want his blood. They want him dead. It's dangerous to affiliate yourself with Jesus in this world. It's dangerous to take up your cross and follow him. There is absolutely no reason if there is 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ and Luke went back and Paul says, go and ask him. They're still alive. Go and ask him. Every one of them would have been like, no, there was no Jew, Jewish carpenter who died on a cross and then rose from the dead, except that it absolutely happened. And not only did it happen and d- did those people verify that it happened, but they did so at the risk of their own life. The only thing that makes sense is if it's actually true. Otherwise, it's not worth getting your head cut off. You know, the, the, the history of, of the church, Peter was crucified upside down. But what most people don't tell you is that before he was crucified upside down and martyred for his faith, he watched his wife be murdered. He watched his wife be martyred. And that's the thing, you know, I've got a little girl now, I'm married, and I think, you know, you, could, you can try to come after me. And I can maybe handle it, but if you go after my wife, or you go after my little girl. I, yeah, you know what? I might like Jesus. Who? I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know. This—it's rolling papers. I was gonna roll a dub. Like I don't—I don't know what I would do. These guys—not only suffered and were persecuted for their faith. They were murdered for their faith and their family members were murdered for their faith. 500 people. 40 days Jesus verified and proved that we can rely on him for our entire existence, our entire eternity. Jesus stuck around for 40 days proving that he even more that he is who he says he is and that you can stake your life on it. Come hell or high water here on earth and it will come. And we'll see that all through the book of Acts. That Jesus Uniting to Jesus is not a good way to preserve yourself here on earth. Every one of his followers died horrible deaths. Why? Because it's true. There was 500 people that witnessed it. Luke did the research. He verified that this was true so that he could tell Theophilus this is what actually happened. I have investigated it carefully. And there's zero reason to affirm it if it was a known, provable, and falsifiable lie. He stuck around for 40 days, proving that he is who he says he is, buttressing his people, sending them out into, to be the apostles that turned over the world, and he was teaching them of the kingdom of God. And you could do a whole study on the kingdom of God, but suffice it to say that the kingdom of God came with Jesus. The character of his kingdom, the reality of his kingdom, the influence of his kingdom, when he showed up and he started doing miracles, he started casting out demons, he started healing the sick, he started banishing leprosy. Raising people from the dead. What he was doing, we call it supernatural events, but actually, what it is is that Jesus was putting things back to their natural state, because the world was created not to decay. The world was created not to atrophy, not to die. Death and sadness and crying and, and manipulation and abuse was not a part of the original script. Sin has done that. And so when Jesus showed up and, and he cast out death and he cast out demons and he cast out disease, he was bending reality back to the, re, to the creation that it actually was to begin with. That is part of of the kingdom of God. That is part of why we are to be salt and light. We're supposed to be Jesus people. When we see something, what does salt do? It preserves. When we see something rotting, when we see something decaying, we get in there and we preserve. We preach the gospel. We're kind. We're patient. We pray for those who persecute us. We turn the other cheek because this isn't our kingdom. I'm not looking for a reputation here. You can bash me all you want. I'm gonna tell you about the love of Christ. Democrat, Republican, Trump, Biden, It doesn't matter. People are dividing for all sorts of reason. Christians are supposed to stand in the middle and say, both y'all, I love you. It's not blue, it's not red, it's not anything else. It's part of what made Jesus so controversial because the religious leaders pointed their fingers at him and said, but he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Can this really be the Messiah? Yeah, it's mercy, it's grace, something that the the Pharisees knew nothing about. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Luke Chapter eleven, verse twenty. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Ultimately, in the consummated sense, in heaven, the kingdom of God is where God's rule is uninhibited by death, the devil, and hell. It's gone. Revelation twenty-one, verse four, describes heaven as the place where there is no more crying, there is no more weeping, there is no more pain. For these former things have passed away. First Peter chapter one, he says, it's an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. The kingdom of God is where love does not fade. Love does not die. Love is not violated. Love is one of the most painful things here in this world because it's always going away. Loved ones are dying. Careers are ending. People are going bankrupt. The love that you have for your summer garden, it's gone every winter. The love that you have for your child, it's gone when they pass away. The love that you have for a spouse, one of y'all is going to bury the other one. Love is always going away here on earth, and it's horrifying. The kingdom of God is where that stops forever because God is love no more crying, no more weeping, no more pain because these former things have passed away, go and tell the world about that. Go and tell the world about the Jesus who gives you the free gift of salvation so that that can be your hope, so that that can be your reality for all of eternity. Verse four, and so gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this sermon because the God the Spirit is one of the, the, the most, con- maybe, the, maybe one of the more controversial, the subject of God the Spirit is very controversial in the church specifically. The name of Jesus will get you in trouble outside of the church, but inside the church everyone's got ideas and things to say about God the Spirit. And you know what? I honestly don't know where I land on, on everything, I'm not comfortable exactly saying that I'm a complete secessionist, meaning that the miracles have ended, that God can give you the power to raise somebody from the dead here in 2021. You know what? Here's, here's my take on that. I don't, I, I'm not really concerned about it, and, and here's why. Here's why, because we see all through the book of Acts, we see all through the life of Jesus, he does incredible miracles. He raises people from the dead. He casts out demons. He heals diseases. It is radical. We see the same thing that his followers are doing in the the book of Acts. It happens quite a bit. But the devil can also do those sorts of things. And, here, and Now, I want to be careful here, but here's why I'm bringing that up. We saw it in the book. We saw it with Moses, right? Moses cast down his, his staff. It turned into a snake. And Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. Deuteronomy chapter 13 actually warns. The Lord warns the people and says, if you see someone doing these kinds of signs and, and miracles, but then tells you to follow after other gods, don't do it. Even though they can do miracles, don't do it. Deuteronomy 13. He says, I'm testing you. Are you gonna chase the signs and wonders? Are you gonna chase the tricks? Are you gonna chase the, the phenomenal? Because the devil might be able to fabricate and falsify miracles, but what the devil cannot do is falsify or fabricate somebody saying Jesus is Lord. That the devil will never do, and that is a miracle. Now, I'm not going to dig in my heels too deep about miracles and prophecy today in 2021. I'm not exactly sure where I land on it. But where I do land is that turning a sinner's heart around to confess that Jesus is Lord and actually having an affection for his law, an affection for who he is, wanting to pursue Jesus at the, at the, at the casting away of all else, to have a heart like the Apostle Paul that said, all of my pedigree, all of my resume, all of my earthly achievements, I, I count them as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That is not a man-made construct. That is a a Holy Spirit-inspired, miraculous event that takes place in the heart and the soul of a human being. That is a miracle, and that is what I am after. That is what I'm called to do. I'm not called to cast out demons. It might happen, it might happen. Josh Josh White has seen that happen. I don't know if it's like, just like, boom, you can do it like we see in the New Testament, I don't know. I've never seen it done, anecdotally, I've never experienced it but I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but I'm saying that what we, we should be paying attention to is that the Holy Spirit's mission is to point to Jesus Christ. That is the point. If you, can, if you can prophesy and perform your miracles and it lifts up the name of Jesus, then I say yes and amen. But there's too many people out there waving their microphone and people are falling down on holy laughter and at the end of the story, it's give me money, give me money, give me money. Kenneth Copeland has a private jet. <laughs> Whatever, dude, like... I just I Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ is not lifted up with that sort of talk. It's not. The holy name of Kenneth Copeland or the Holy Name of Ian Cornell. I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want to play that game. We're we're told from the lips of Jesus Himself that the main the main duty of God the Spirit is to remind us, to point to us, point us to Jesus Christ, what he did, and what he's told us to do. And if that includes miracles in 2021, we can have that conversation later. But preach the gospel. It's the gospel, Paul says. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel. That's what it is. It's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel itself, what Jesus has done. He says, Jesus says in John 14, verse 26, promising the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 15, 26, he said that the Holy Spirit will come and he will testify about me. God the Spirit is a light that points to God the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what he does, he does it in your heart and he does it through your ministry. He's pointing to Jesus Christ, every believer. Now here's what we see in the book of Acts and this is my take on it. If if you disagree with me we can talk about it over a cup of coffee later. Every, Every believer, every person who comes to an authentic saving faith in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit because it's a miracle. God the Spirit has to change your heart. You must be drawn. Anyone who confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, God raised him from the dead, will be saved. And Ezekiel, this is New Testament and Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, Yahweh says this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all of my rules. 1 Corinthians, New Testament, twelve, thirteen. Paul writes, by one spirit we've all been baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. The family of God, those who are born of God, those who are born again, John chapter three, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. The spirit moves where he will, like the wind. You'll never know where it's coming from or where it's going. You see its effects, but you can't tell its direction from one moment to the next. It does what it wants. The Spirit of God does what he does. And he points to Jesus Christ. We're given a new heart. We're given a new affection. And you know, the thing about a new heart, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over tonight. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I've been thinking about this a lot because I try to like understand more a, a new heart, a new affection. Like I don't, one of my best friends hates broccoli. And he's like, I can't make myself like broccoli. I can't make myself do it. That's what God the Spirit does. God the Spirit changes your appetites. He changes your affections from self to Christ. And I saw this, I saw this video of someone recording an alligator in Florida walking up out of a bank. And it, it passes this beautiful, like, 2015 motorcycle. It was a, I think it was a Harley Davidson. It's a very quick shot. I'm a Harley fanatic, and I, I can't tell. But I think it was a Harley. This alligator just walks right by it. Ignores it. Doesn't even cast an eyeball over at that Harley. It Just because he's an alligator. He doesn't care about motorcycles. It's not in his nature. You can't make an alligator stop and go, that's a cool motorcycle. It's a V-twin. Dope. Six-speed? All right. An alligator doesn't care. You don't care about God's law. You don't care about God's will. We're born. The, the Bible says that we're born children of wrath. We're born sinners. We're born with this innate rebellion, this innate rejection of God. We want to pursue our own lust. We want to pursue our own appetites. And to change that, to actually change an appetite, is the work of God the Spirit. That's what he does. The Lord says, I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. He'll make us want to obey. And that's the beauty of Moments like the, the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus is like, even if you don't murder, but you're mad at your brother, it's the same sin. Well, then all of us are murderers. And Jesus' point is, yes, you cannot save yourself. You need a new heart. You need to, you need to be regenerated. You need a Savior. But to care about that Savior to actually believe, to look at Jesus on the cross, which this is a repugnant thing, to look at Jesus on the cross and say, I did that, and I actually deserve that. In a culture like ours, it's all about elevating the individual in all of the romantic ways that you possibly can, the self-elevated ways, to look at Jesus bloodied on the cross and go, that's actually what I deserve. And that, this sin that he died for, it's my sin, it's my fault. That's a miracle. Because we look at Jesus on the cross, and we're like, I had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with that. Don't put that on me. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The Spirit at Pentecost, what we'll see in chapter 2, when the Spirit comes and there's tongues of fire and everyone's speaking in tongues... The explosion, that's the explosion of the church from Palestine out into the greater world. And we see in the New Testament time and time again that someone is ignited with a certain power from the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. We even see it with Jesus himself. And I mean, how, who's going to say like how how close was Jesus to the Father? How close was Jesus to the Holy Spirit? Uh, God is one God in three persons, Father, God, Father Son, and Holy Spirit. I, 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 the arithmetic is beyond me. I don't know. I can't answer the question, how close was Jesus? To, infinitely close, perfectly close, never deviated. Jesus never sinned in word, thought, or deed, which means that everything he did was approved and honored and done by God the Spirit. They were, they were, they were immutably close until the cross when he became sin. But we're told in Luke 4 that just before he goes up into the wilderness for his 40 days of of temptation, it says that Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, went into the wilderness. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and then prophesied a specific power for a specific purpose. As we'll see here in the next month or so, Peter in Acts chapter 4, he's in the hot seat. He's got to say something good. He's got to say something believable, and it says that Peter, now full of the Holy Spirit, began to speak. Specific fillings, specific empowerings for specific purposes. Now again, I'm not saying that doesn't happen today, but what I am saying is that the focal point is Christ, the person of the resurrected Jesus. Everything else, we can get lost in the weeds. Jesus said, he will testify about me. That's the point. And that's where I want to land. I want God the Spirit to point me to Jesus, remind me of what he did, remind me of everything that he taught, which is exactly what Jesus said he would do, and to, and to help me do what I need to do today. You'll be baptized not many days from now. In this, in this work, this daily grind of being a Christian, it's hard. You know, we're, I said we're, we're, we're on the outs as Christians in this culture. We're out as Christians in Portland, Oregon. We're not popular, and so we need help to endure. The staff here at Door of is reading a book right now called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and the Holy Spirit's empowerment to keep us faithful to Christ, even in the midst of persecution and hatred and <coughs> all the rest, that in and of itself is a miracle. It's spoken of in Philippians 2.13. Paul says, for God who God works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, just the daily grind, the power of what I would call persistence and patience, living this Christian life day in and day out. It's not easy, and so much of the New Testament is reserved for for teaching us how to do it, how to keep our minds focused, how to keep our lives focused on the person Jesus Christ, following him closely, and we cannot do that without the Holy Spirit inside of you going, hey, you're thinking about this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're You're under grace, you're not under law, you're safe, relax, preach. (laughs) You're a plumber, you're an electrician, you're a tile guy, you're a stay-at-home parent. God the Spirit works through you, reminding you of who Jesus is, both to will and to work for the Father's good pleasure. That in and of itself is a miracle of God the Spirit. So when they had come together and they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore The kingdom to Israel, but he said to them, verse seven: It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by His own authority. These guys were thinking, they were looking, but they were looking too low. Is it now time for the kingdom to be restored to Israel? You know, they thought that that earthly kingdom was going to be set up, and then Jesus died on the cross. It seemed like it was the end of the game. But then Jesus rose from the dead, and they're like, okay, well now, now, right now, like we've got the whole death and burial thing out of the way. So now let's get let's get busy politically. Let's get these Romans off of our back. I mean, the area of Palestine, the northern and southern kingdom, I mean, all through the history of Israel, they were under the rule of, I mean, they came out of Egyptian slavery, and then they were under the rule of the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and now they're under the rule of the Romans. And they're like, is it finally now the time that Israel will be allowed to spread her wings? They no doubt knew what the prophet wrote in the book of Isaiah, Israel shall blossom. This is Isaiah 27, verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, and Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and will fill the whole world with fruit. Jesus, is it now the time that Israel is gonna fill the whole world with fruit? Let's get the Romans off of our back. Let's get some independence. Let's get get rid of that pesky tax. I don't like that thing. Let's overthrow these dudes. And Jesus says, no. Not only were they not thinking about the kingdom right in its in its timing, they weren't thinking about it rightly in its breadth or in its in its magnitude. He says it's not for you to know. And friends, that is our is that not our least favorite thing to hear? Lord, I want to know, and he says, "No. I'm not giving you the answer. Do you trust me? Do you trust Jesus?" Do you trust Jesus with the things that you don't know? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed are ours. But in this moment, Jesus is saying times and seasons, you don't need to know. Jesus even said in Matthew 24, the son doesn't know. Jesus said, even I don't know, just the father, which is mysterious because he's truly God and truly man simultaneously. His sovereignty must have somehow been used to limit the things that he had insight to. But anyways, he says, I don't know. And he says to the disciples, you're not going to know. Follow me. End of the gospel of John. Peter, you're going to die. Things are going to happen to you that you don't like, but follow me. And, and Peter turns around and what's to do. He says, well, what about, what about, my, what about my, my buddy John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, if it's my will that he remains until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. And friends, we have to get real and ask, to, ask ourselves that question. It's not my faith. It's not your faith. It's not your parents' faith. It's, it, it's it's your faith. It's not your, your parents' faith. It's not your friends' faith. It's not your pastor's faith. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Do you trust him with your life? Is he your savior? Is he your king? I cannot answer that question for you. All I can do is tell you how good he is by what is revealed to us in scripture. It's not time for you to know. It is not for you to know, but good grief. Has he not given us every reason to trust him in the time between? And we don't know how long our sojourn is going to be. We don't know when Christ is going to return. And we don't know how long individually we're going to serve the Lord because any one of us could die tomorrow and our service will be up. We just don't know. But Jesus says, never mind that, follow me. And I love this. Here's a reason to trust him. Here's a reason to love him. It's subtle, but it's right here. It's easy to miss, but it's right on the page. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set. I love that. He doesn't say my Father. Because he's resurrected from the dead, he's paid for sins. Those who put their faith and trust in him are now sons and daughters of God. And the Bible says that we're brothers. The writer of Hebrews says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. In John chapter 20, Jesus raised from the dead and he sees Mary and Mary grabs a hold of him and, and he says, go and tell my brothers that I'm going to ascend. Romans 8, verses 16 and following. The great eight, Romans 8. Read Romans 8. Romans 8 is a absolutely wonderful, wonderful chapter. It says that the Spirit testifies, the God the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then we're heirs of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. We are Christ's siblings. The relationship in heaven will be very different, but here on earth, that's the imagery that we're given. He says, the Father. It's our... Our Father who who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, our Father. Not just Jesus' Father. He invites us into the family. He takes the rebel, he takes the rejecter, he takes the cynic, he takes the sinner, cleanses them of their sin and seats them at the family table and gives them the family name. You don't need to know when I'm coming back. Just know that my Father is your Father. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The guys were, were short-sighted and saying, Israel, the kingdom here and now, because they didn't need to know the time and they were also short-sighted because they didn't understand the breath. Jesus says, <laughs> I love this, they say, Jesus, are you now going to do this? And Jesus says, no, you're going to do this. And it's not just Israel the family of God, the kingdom of God is not just Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to even the ends of the earth. We are to be witnesses. And friends, I don't like to tell people what to do a whole lot, but I have to tell you what to do. If we're to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ, if we're to be his agents, then we have to know our Bibles. We have to know what we're we have, to, we have to know what we believe. We have to know what we believe and we have to believe what we know. We have to read our Bibles and tell the world this is it. This is him. And there is no other way. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through him. That is it. We need to know what our Bibles say that, so that we can preach with conviction, so that people know that, we're actually, that we actually believe what we're saying. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, Our gospel came in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We have to know our Bibles. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is on the run, man. He's going everywhere, and there's this brief moment where he stops in Berea, and it says that he daily met with the people, and they went through the scriptures daily. They went through the scriptures daily. Do we go through the scriptures daily? When my little girl was born, I was tired. I wasn't as tired as Angie, but I was tired, and I was enjoying some R&R, and I I picked up a 900-page novel And I plowed through it, but I will admit, I didn't read my Bible a whole lot while I was plowing through that 900 page novel. I did that. I'm actually not stoked on it. I'm not stoked on it at all. We need to, we can, I think it was Spurgeon, it was Spurgeon who said, we can visit other books, but let's live in the Bible. We're told in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, put off your old self, do not lie to one another. You're putting off your old self with its practices and you have now put on your new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. What is the image of your creator? Do you make up some idea about who God is or is your reality and your belief of who God is based on what it says in the Bible? It's the biggest hurdle of my whole life. I was 30 years old and realized I hate God not because he's worthy of hate but because I actually don't know who he is. My knowledge is wrong. My knowledge is off being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. I'm, bar- I'm burning this point as much as I can. Second Peter, the, the, the letter of second Peter, he says this. For this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith And moral excellence, supply to your moral excellence, knowledge. And supply to your knowledge, self-control. And to your self-control, perseverance. Supply, knowledge. You're being renewed in knowledge. The Bible says to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you won't be able to not be convicted whenever you tell people about Jesus. Because he is absolutely compelling. His love compels us, Paul says. And if you know him through his word, through how the Holy Spirit makes Jesus so much more real to you through the inspired word, infallible word of God, you will know Jesus. He's alive inside of you and you will not help but be able to tell people about him. Our gospel came with conviction, with the Holy Spirit and with power. You are my witnesses. Go. Jerusalem, Judea. Samaritans and all the rest of the world, and you know that the, that the followers of Jesus, the apostles at that moment heard that, and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. Jerusalem, the people that just killed you, you want us to go back there? They just hung you on a cross. Affiliating with you is gonna get us in trouble, and you want us to go back and tell them how much God loves them. And, and Judea, you want us to not just do it in the city, but you want us to go out to the surrounding region? That's a lot of space. And the Samaritans, you're gonna see this in the book of Acts quite a bit, Peter's got a racist problem. It takes him a long time to figure out, okay, the gospel goes to everyone, not just the Jews. Samaritans and and the Jews did not like each other. And Jesus says, your racism can go to hell. I don't care. You go and you tell the Samaritans, and you go and you tell the world, this isn't just about Israel. It's about the entire planet. Go, you're my witnesses. Read your Bibles. Learn what you got to know, and go tell them. Go show them they say, will you? And he says, no, you will. And as his witnesses, I'm closing out, I promise. I know I'm going long tonight, but this is awesome. As his witnesses, Jesus continues to operate through us. And we're going to see this in the book of Acts as well. God the Spirit leads people to do And In in Acts, he directly tells them, he says, go and do this. In chapter 8, God the Spirit tells Philip that chariot there's a guy on there. There's a guy that's in that, that's in that, that's in that entourage who's reading the book of Isaiah. Go, go and tell him what Isaiah is all about. And Philip goes and he does it. In chapter 13, the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas for the specific work that they had to do. In chapter 15, the Holy Spirit is there guiding and directing during the Jerusalem council. God the Spirit is moving in the world through his people. That's how he does it. That's how he's chosen to do it. And finally closing out with these last three verses, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking towards heaven? This, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The language there in the original, in the original Greek means that they were looking up into heaven like "Uh (laughs) uh-oh now he's really gone what are we going to do and these two angels show up and they say don't worry about it he's you haven't lost him you haven't lost him. He's, not only is he coming back, but he is still here because he promised that he would send his Holy Spirit. In the upper room discourse, the last night that he was with his boys before he was crucified, he said, it's actually to your advantage that I go because if I, go, if I don't go, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper, will not come. Why is that important? Because Jesus could only be in one place in one time because he had a physical body. God the Spirit can be everywhere. He's omnipresent. You can be locked in the deepest, darkest dungeon and Jesus is with you. Because he's not bound by a body. Because he went up into heaven and he came. He sent his spirit down to us, working through us daily. When uh, when Jesus was resurrected, the same story. He appears to Mary. Mary grabs onto him and he says to her, "Don't hold on to me, but go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending." And he didn't say, "Don't hold on to me," because it was like, "Don't touch me," like it's taboo or something. I mean, he because then he went to Thomas and he was like, "Hey, touch me. Check this out. I'm real." But what he was saying to Mary is, "Don't hold it. Don't I'm going to ascend. Don't hold on to me physically. Something better is coming." And it must have been so. It's hard to imagine, but even Jesus said, "It's to your benefit that I go." His Spirit is omnipresent, doing the work of Jesus all over the world, available at any time, any place, at any moment. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to go to a mosque. You don't have to go to some specific. Geographical location, or a specific building, or be with specific people. You can, you can pray to the living God at any time. He's available to you. One of the most moving moments that I've that I've had as a Christian was listening to a sermon by a pastor who was preaching. I used to remember the name. It was the it was it's a it's a high security prison, maximum security prison in the Midwest. There's 1,000 men in that prison, and every single one of them is going to die there. And this pastor stood there in front of these men who will never see the light of day again, so to speak. And he said to them, what Jesus brought, what Jesus made available, what Jesus has for you is available for you here. Maybe nothing else is. Maybe you'll never have a milkshake again. Maybe you'll never ride a roller coaster. Maybe you'll never see your children. Maybe you'll never get married. Maybe you're going to die in a, in a room that's six by eight cinder block walls. But Jesus is available to you. And so Jesus said, don't hold on to me. It's to your advantage that I go. And he's coming back. He's going to come back the same way that he came. The prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man rising up and taking the throne next to the Ancient of Days, that day is coming. The kingdom will be consummated. Jesus will come back. We don't know when, but do you trust him in the meantime? Let me give you these words. As we close, do you trust Jesus in the meantime? This is a, this is a miracle. You know the kind of miracle that I want is this, kind of, is this kind of miracle. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and following. Paul writes this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, just listen to these words, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, what are you rooted and grounded in? What is is your deepest, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, do you still struggle with believing that the deepest, most fundamental truth of who you are is that you are loved by the God of the universe, the God who holds up the entire cosmos? He loves you. Do you believe that? Do you need to hear that again? Do you need to be reminded of that? Fine. Fine but know that grounded in love and that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't even entirely know what that means, but I want it. When I'm in traffic, when I'm burping Ella at four o'clock in the morning, (laughs) Ella, Ella, Ella spit up a couple weeks ago. And there was still a little bit of it in her mouth. And then she sneezed. And it was this like vomit projectile. Poof! It's right in my face. It was in my hair. It was in my eyelashes. I want to be filled with all the fullness of God at that moment. That's a miracle. That's what I want. Parenting is already tough. And I'm calling out to the Lord. I need the fullness of God. And there, there he is. God the Spirit. Jesus has ascended. But he is not aloof. He is still working. He is still present. He did not raise from the dead and ascend into heaven, and clean his hands and say, okay, I'm done with them, I have done my share, I'm through. He's still working, he's still ministering, he's still loving, he's still pursuing, he's still sanctifying, he's still saving. For the whole world, Jesus' ascension means that he's available even today, 2,000 years later. He's that thorough, he's that comprehensive, he's that big, he's that good, amen? Amen. Amen.